Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So I think a lot of people, of course, look at the GOP in general, but specifically a lot of conservative leaders and ask themselves, why is it so important to these people that they have to be loved by their enemies? Why are they constantly bowing and scraping for the approval of those that seem to hate them? What is the dynamic where people who should be representing me, should be representing my interests, should care about my values, my family, the place I live, why do they seem so much more interested in signaling to the people who live in New York or somewhere in California or in Washington, D.C., than to trying to reach my goals, achieve the things that I elected them or paid them or listened to them because I want them to move towards these issues. What is this driving mechanism? And today discussing that topic with me is a YouTube commentator, a guy with a great interview show, Jay Burden. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Aaron. Yeah, it was great. I got to meet you uh, when we had the uh, Skildings event. And of course, I've been on your show. Lots of our friends have been on there, guys. So make sure that you check that out. Jay's always got great conversations going on over at his channel. But we're, we want to dive into this topic of regime conservatism. Why is it so popular? Why does it seem that the base is, de is demanding more and more from their leadership, more and more from their politicians, more and more from their commentators? And yet there's this constant division, even when the base, the customers, the, the voters, the people who should be uh, driving the interests of these people why are they not getting a response? Why do the, all of these people seem still stuck back in you know the 1990s or, some, 90s or something when it comes to political opposition? We're going to dive into all that, guys. But before we do, let's hear about Miracle Sheet. Did you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you wake up too hot or too cold, I highly recommend that you check out Miracle Maid's bed sheet. Inspired by NASA, Miracle Made uses silver-infused fabrics and makes temperature-regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Using silver-infused fabrics inspired by NASA, Miracle Made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long, so you get better sleep every night. These sheets are infused with silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacteria growth, which lets them stay clean and fresh three times longer than other sheets. Miracle sheets are very comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands and feel as nice as bed sheets used by some five-star hotels. You don't need to sleep with bacteria that clogs your pores, causing breakouts and acne. Instead, you can sleep clean with Miracle. Go to trymiracle.com slash Oren to try Miracle made sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use the promo code Oren at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an additional 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. So upgrade your sleep with Miracle made today. Go to trymiracle.com Oren and use the code Oren to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40%. Again, that's trymiracle.com Oren to treat yourself. All right, Jay. So you suggested this topic and I thought it was important because it's timely. Uh, there's another example of this that's kind of popped up here recently. Could you explain a little bit about uh, kind of Rod Dreher and his background with with uh, regime conservatism kind of signaling in these really uh, public ways that he's on the right side when it seems necessary to him? So sure thing. So I think you and I both are on a similar page that we don't like drama, right? So I'm not trying to turn this into kind of a personal attack on Rod past what it's kind of necessary right. to do. So I've met him in person. He was very kind to me. That's not what I'm doing here. Yeah. So uh, Dreher, for those who don't know, has had a, a relatively long career. He was at the American Conservative for quite a long time. He had his blog there that a lot of people read. And he had a series of books that were kind of at least the first two were kind of ahead of the curve for conic. His first one, Crunchy Cons, is kind of a book about uh, right-wing hippies, right? So people like Joel Salatin, that kind of thing. Now, the book that was kind of his breakout, one that was extremely influential on me, is a book called The Benedict Option, which is basically a book where he makes an argument that 
conservatives and particularly religious conservatives need to change how they think about culture and the culture war. Essentially that just like Benedictine monks, right? We are not in a position of power anymore. We need to think about essentially retreating, creating our own enclaves, our own kind of parallel societies and, you know, manage our own affairs like that. Admittedly, you that's now kind of a tired argument, but at the time it was fresh for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Now, most interestingly to this specific event, he wrote a book called Live Not By Lies, which is this kind of, uh, to be honest, this little bit moralizing book about how conservatives, you know, good people need to t- basically completely divorce themselves from the lies of culture and not allow themselves to be browbeaten into going along with lies, hence the, the kind of quote from Solzhenitsyn there. And he uses a lot of direct quotes and kind of anecdotes from Christians behind the Iron Curtain basically Christians who were under an atheist hostile regime. So fair enough at this point, right? Like even if you don't like those books, at least there's some kind of consistent line through them. But what's interesting, right, is that Dreyer writes one thing and he does another. So the, the kind of topical part is essentially there's been a news story going around where this traditional Catholic kid got into a fed honeypot on the internet and got his house raided by the feds right? Allegedly, the thing said, and I should say allegedly, because he's a minor, the court documents are sealed. Roger has published them. Yeah, that, that's really important to this. Like he claimed he <laughs> yes. claimed to have the information from sealed documents from this guy. And he said, like, this is the reason I'm I'm I know everything that's going on. And right. then it turned out he he didn't, and it was something different. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. Right, exactly. And the reason this is relevant is because initially Dreyer had said, like, go help this kid out. Oh, wait, this kid may have said something I don't approve of. I'm going to publicly basically go for it and say, like, don't give to this. This is bad. So uh, let's just take an aside. Uh, I don't know what actually happened here. There's a very real possibility this kid does or said things that I don't agree with, right? But you know, we know as both Christians, the normal, you know, policy there is either confront someone privately, or if you think that someone, especially one of your people, right, this guy's a a conservative Christian, don't make this into a big dramatic thing, take it down quietly. And if that were the case, we wouldn't be having this discussion. But, right, there is a significant amount of cultural clout to be get to be created, right, from turning this into a a mountain where you can plant your flag and say, I'm a conservative, but you know what I hate more than anything else? Those people over there, you know, the people who are to the right of me. And so initially, right on the face of it, that doesn't make sense, right? Like if we, if we view American politics as a fight between two equivalent parties, right? Left-wing or left-wing America and right-wing America, why would you want to essentially sell out to your enemies, you know, give them a, a leg up? So, if you steel man the position of Dreyer and more regime conservatives, David French, for one, springs to mind, they would say, well, I'm just so principled. You know, I I would rather, I would rather lose a thousand times than win dishonestly. And they may believe that I'm not entirely convinced, right? But that is a, a thing that people have said. But one of the things that I think is integral to understanding this is an idea mold bug, Curtis Yarvin, uh, he came up with, right? Which is that essentially Republicans and the Democrat, the right and the left in America, they're not the same thing. They are two parts of a similar organization with different functions. So he described blue America, the Democrats, the liberals, whatever you want to say, as the inner party. And the inner party is the party of, po- of power. Basically, the Democrats are to politics what you know GM is to car reviews, right? GM always seems to win somehow. Mm. And he found out, well, to be honest, is because they own a lot of those places, similar to the Yankees. They're kind of the default. And the Republicans are always kind of playing catch up. And so what he basically said is, and I realize I've been talking a good bit, Aaron, I'll throw it back to you, is that essentially the Republicans aren't a real party. They're essentially a, a, a party designed to, one, manage dissent, and two, to essentially gather resources from their base. They're not a party interested in winning. And you see this very clearly when these kind of regime conservatives get into power. What do they do? Absolutely nothing. What they certainly don't do is increase their power or the power of their base. 
And so I think that this kind of specific instance in which Dreyer makes his true allegiances known, right, which is to the true party of power, is kind of a, a, a crystallization of that. Do you see what I'm getting at, Aron? Absolutely. And yeah, I think I think there's a couple things here that are important. First, like you said, um, a lot of these people do believe this. So I I have I really have zero doubt that Dreyer and and um uh uh David French believe that they are principled and that they are doing this. In fact, I think a lot of people inside the GOP, inside Republican, you know, apparatus, inside Conservative Inc., they believe what they're saying. There, there's really not. Uh, there's, you know, when when I was outside, you know, any of this stuff, and I had never interacted with any of this stuff, I thought there's a lot of, oh well, someone's in on it. Like at some level. These people are winking and nodding at, about how they're managing this stuff. But I think a lot of these people really do believe 100% uh, that, that they are doing something correct. But the incentives have lined up in a way that creates the dynamic that you're talking about. And this is always confusing for people because, you know, they think that when I suggest, uh, when I say things uh, like, uh, if the Republican Party vanished, that would be the bet that would be the most dangerous thing for the regime like that would be uh, that would put the regime in a far more dangerous situation than a republican victory they don't they think oh well then you think there's some conspiracy inside the republican party to control all political dissent it's like no but it's but its existence allows for that dynamic to exist because it creates that situation that you're talking about so i think it's difficult for people to to understand why how someone could fully believe that they're doing the right thing that they're fighting the correct fight but but could simultaneously then act as a piece of controlled opposition or could could show regime regime loyalty could be the outer party in a way that is helpful to the inner party well definitely and so that default status that i mentioned in addition to kind of being the the winner right in this game you also control what is high status mm -hmm. and so a lot of what we're talking about is actually people seeking status right like the the low end version of that like well what's cool and the high end version of that is essentially what do smart people do and if you look at smart people things they're effectively becoming a democrat right so for instance right like smart people hate trump and why do they hate trump well he's backwards mean racist all of those things right? High class, and I'm putting all of this in quotes, people aren't like those other kind of like gross conservatives, right? And so that's kind of the dynamic I'm talking about. And by controlling that kind of prestige network, you know, you essentially filter that out. And it's not necessarily like there's some mustache twirling villain at the top saying like, oh yes, Rod Dreher, write this article. Not at all. But it's when you control the, the kind of mechanisms of culture, Right. Like, let's be honest. We all know what every what every actor, who do they vote for? Right. Mm. Exactly. Similarly to the Ivies, anything like that, essentially the institutions of legitimation. Right. Where if you're an elite, what makes you more elite? Well, essentially getting more gold stars from the regime, admittedly in different forms. But if you kind of follow that up, it's not truly neutral. Right. And so what's interesting is you actually go to Dreyer's book. He's very, very good at pointing this out. Good at pointing out how in the Soviet Union, you know, if you were a person of faith, even if you didn't feature, you know, face direct oppression, right? Even if you didn't necessarily have to go to a gulag, well, you were seen as backwards. You, know, you were seen as a roop. You were blocked from certain professional organizations, even if not by law, just because it would make that organization less prestigious if you were a part of it. And so that mechanism essentially allows what would have been at one time kind of controversial political opinions to be relegated to essentially the, the, the layer of social acceptability, right? Where you know very well, right? If you in your previous career as a teacher made your, made what were normal opinions on gay marriage, you know, 25 years ago, if you, if you said that, I mean, there's a very real possibility you'd be looking for a job oh, and that's on, a, and you can see that trend applied at essentially every, every layer of society. And so I guess that my point in this is not just to kind of, you know, ramble about prestige, but it's that in controlling what is acceptable, what's good, what smart people do, 
you can kind of pull all of society along by the nose. Absolutely. There's a reason that every one of these people complains about why they don't have a New York Times bestseller, or you can tell which ones have the opportunity to get a New York Times bestseller. It's not the person who would actually sell the most books. It's the person who would please or would be acceptable to those that make the selection at the paper. And there's never any interest in finding a different way to credential or legitimize themselves they're more interested in appearing favorably in the pages of already established uh papers that would create social cachet and that's what gives them their status inside the conservative movement oftentimes right that that's what gives them access to uh fundraising that's what gives them access to uh, establishment politicians the, the ability to suggest legislation the ability to be a mover and shaker is tied to this. That's why somebody like Mitch McConnell, who couldn't be further from the interests of the average conservative, wields so much power inside the you know inside the Republican Party because he holds uh, all kinds of positions that give him access to money and power that allow him to decide who's going to be able to get fundraising and financing handed and doled out to them. And that happens inside the GOP. But of course, it also happens inside the halls of conservative thought leadership, think tanks, media, those kind of things. And so being closer to regime respectability grants you uh, this status, even inside the opposing movement, which then means that the left is always dictating, like you said, who's getting status handed out to them. Well, indefinitely, right? And, and you see that, that that sort of is, is at the, the core of the problem which is for conservative elites, right? These, these kind of like large figures in the generally Republican leaning sphere, essentially who are their patrons and who are their clients, right? To look at it very, very you know, kind of like uh, simply. And the problem is from one perspective, people like you and I are literally in some cases, their patrons, right? Like many of these people receive donations from normal conservative Americans or from conservative businesses. And so from that, you would logically think, well, I should get something for it. You know, I should get some representation. And while they're very happy to take your money, you cannot, you cannot give them the prestige that a normal organization, quote unquote, normal organization can, right? And so essentially you see this, that, well, what happens when a conservative elite violates some kind of core tenant of uh, the Republican base? Right. Like when a when a conservative elite says something like, OK, well, maybe actually this is a perfect example. Gay surrogacy. Right. The idea that two men can get, quote unquote, married, you know, essentially smuggle a child into the country. Well, if you look at the base, that is a very, very unpopular thing. But you can get all of the congratulations you want from provative conservative voices. Right. Now, if we we kind of flip that around. You know, we have someone say something that is very, very popular about the conservative base. But I mean, you can imagine what would happen if someone at, you know, Fox News on air basically said, you know, I think that's I think that's child smuggling and they should be thrown in jail. I mean, they may not be, you know, they may not completely lose their job, but they would face much, much more pushback. Right. Yeah, and they're, they're probably not getting any choice spots on the shows in rotation. A hundred percent. And when you, the reason that I bring this up is not just to complain that it's not fair, right? That's kind of a, that's kind of trite, but to say that this is not a, this is not a dualistic system, right? This is not two equal and opposite forces pushing against each other. It is kind of the inner and outer party, right? And so that's truly the, the one of the interesting things I think Trump brought up, right? Is this idea of the swamp, you know, the idea of rhinos, which has existed for a while, but very clearly delineating the difference between people like you know, Mitch McConnell and, and the base. And so I think that that is an interesting split to watch take place because you can tell they're kind of uncomfortable about it. Like they don't like talking about that. Oh, yeah. And anytime there's a chance to essentially close that gap, right? Like, uh, like Liz Cheney, you know, any, like no matter how distant it is, but a chance to have a Republican who can quote unquote, save the soul of the nation, you know, they kind of jump on it and give people who have no charisma or really traction with the base an absolutely inordinate amount of, of screen time and support from kind of official official press outlets. Yeah, the Nikki Haley, uh, you know, just out of nowhere, you know, no connection to where we're talking about now. She's surging 
uh, with support <laughs> among Democrats. It's thought I'd mention that uh, just for just, no reason at all. No reason at all. Uh, yeah, no, I want to get into that Trump dynamic because I think that's that's really essential um, that you that what you just hit on there and why that splits away from the machine and why that scares uh, people in both the GOP and the Democratic establishment. But before we get to that, guys, let me tell you about Jobstack. These days, it's impossible to thrive with just one job. Between increasing living costs, paying off debts, and planning for the future, things like buying a home, building savings, and even going on vacation can seem like fantasies. If your goal is financial freedom, you could start taking on more hours at your current job, work towards a promotion, or try putting your money into something risky like stocks, cryptocurrencies, or even a side hustle. But at the end of the day, do you really want to sacrifice time and energy that could otherwise be spent with your loved ones or on your hobbies? just to make a living? Luckily, you don't have to hustle to reliably make more money. All you have to do is job stacking. Job stacking is the best way for regular people, regular employees, to unleash their earning potential and increase job and financial security. How? By working multiple jobs, but without burning out or more importantly, getting caught by corporate overlords. Job stacking allows you to reliably receive paychecks from multiple employers each month without having to work more than eight hours a day. You don't have to be in tech or any particular field or industry to do it as long as you can work remotely. If you've thought about working multiple jobs, but you're not sure how to start or are afraid of getting caught, get the fundamental job stacking course today and learn all of the secrets on how to sustainably work multiple full-time jobs from the foremost expert on the matter, Rolf Halza, author of Job Stacking. Rolf has worked multiple full-time jobs since 2018, including hybrid jobs, and has condensed all of his experiences and wisdom into a single four-module online course so you can start proficiently job stacking without having to make mistakes, figuring things out on your own, or reinventing the wheel in the process. Go to www.jobstacking.com and enter the promo code ORIN to get a special discount. All right, Jay. So you were talking about this thing that Trump introduced with the swamp, right? And everyone noticed how difficult it was for Trump to get things done, of course, when he got in. But even coming into the conversation, it was very clear who every, who was arrayed against him, how he was dangerous to the establishment, how they were willing to elevate pretty much anyone but him. And it's very weird because Trump is a blue dog Democrat at best, right? This is a guy who was like, waving pride flags on stage like this is a guy who who still talks about how much he likes caitlin jenner and stuff like this is not a far-right guy by anybody's real imagination but for some reason the media and even the gop establishment treat him like he's this crazy radical bomb thrower even though his positions are at the very best center left and I think the answer as to why that that really is, is that he reveals kind of the uh, the controlled nature of the situation. He doesn't have ideological barriers. He just says what he thinks the base wants to hear. A lot of people might think that's like a downside of somebody. I get that. Like, oh, he's, he's unprincipled. He just says what people want to hear. But that means he ends up reflecting the actual interests of the base rather than the way that they are supposed to be kind of herded by the establishment and that means he he's kind of channeling the zeitgeist of actual middle america and that terrifies the establishment at this point well, well definitely and so that i think that a lot of people particularly kind of conservative americans and i just want to say this i'm not saying this out of a i'm not saying this to punch down these are my people and part of the reason i get so worked up about this is these are my people right and they're getting a raw deal is essentially a, a lot of red Americans have been sold a lie about politics. And politics at its most fundamental level is punishing your enemies, rewarding your friends. And essentially what the right has been given for, let's just be honest, the last 50 to 60 years is that, okay, vote us in, we'll leave you alone. Nothing else. And don't get me wrong, given the alternative of you know, someone sticking their finger in your eye. I mean, I guess that's preferable, but that is not the same deal that you get on the other side of the of the of the aisle, right? You will get rewarded. You know, for being a Democrat client. You know, well, let's take the example of, of trans people, right? If you're transgender right now, you can sign up with the U.S. military, get your surgery paid for, and get an indefinite waiver to deploy, which basically means you get a free check from the government, expensive medical care. You have no uniform registration requirements and you don't have to do anything, right? Right. Whereas let's be honest, if you're a, you know, if, if you're a white boy from Oklahoma and you sign up, I mean, are you getting any one of those? 
Exactly. And so that that's a very crystallized example. You see it in other places as well, right? The way the college debt is set up, the way civil rights law is set up, that there is active discrimination for Democrat clients. And so when we look at the Republican situation, we have one person, Trump, and I'll be honest, I've never voted for the man. I don't really vote, but who kind of teases the idea that like, hey, vote for me and I might do something for you. People lose their mind. Yeah. And you see people who don't have this idea of patronage, right? Vote for me and I'll do something for you. They, they kind of can't understand the phenomenon. They're like, well, why can't DeSantis or blah, 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 do the same thing? They have the same policies. And the dirty little secret is policy doesn't matter. No yeah. one, like legitimately, no one cares. If you've ever talked to someone who isn't a massive politics nerd, you'll figure this out pretty quickly. Unfortunately, most of the people who write about politics are politics nerds. But essentially, right, even the whiff of that, and people don't just have loyalty to the platform, they have loyalty to the man. And we're seeing a much more, weirdly enough, honest version of politics than what we've been sold for the last 50 to 60 years. And so I think that it's sort of two things at once, which is one, Trump never really got the memo that the Republican Party isn't a real party. You know, he's like, oh, well, I'm in charge. I guess I'm in charge. Yeah. And well, I guess I'm in charge. So I might as well you know, I deliver the back. I deliver what the customer wants, right? Like that's my job. Like I so I, I'm at, I'm in the head of the business. My job is to serve the customer. And yeah, he didn't get the he didn't get the memo that he's actually supposed to be filtering what the customer wants, not not delivering it. A hundred percent. And and part of that is that again, it goes back to that idea that this is not really a two party state. You know, there is one system for power and prestige. And alternatively, you know, you're you're essentially your job is like you said to filter the customer. You know, it's essentially to keep a certain part, the non-client groups, happy enough to not cause problems and use them as an economic battery to power the patronage machine of the other side. And so it's a little bit of a simplistic model, but it very accurately predicts what we've seen. And again, it's one of those things where you can very clearly see in a situation like this one where there's controversy, there's a lawsuit involved where someone's where they where their true allegiances lie. You know, when there's a moment of crisis, who do they default to? Right? Do they default to saying, "I don't know the details, I'll just shut up?" Or do they essentially feed someone into the maw of the beast? You know, use this opportunity to increase their cachet with this monster. And when someone does that, I would I would advocate, don't forget it. You know, the, the Dreyer's done this before. He's canceled people before. And when we look at like, okay, what should we do? Because obviously, you know, in this whole conversation about netter, no enemies to the right, people have brought up, well, what if someone who's politically allied with me does something morally inexcusable, right? Substitute your, your favorite crime in there. Well, to be honest, right, that should be something that you and I think about. That does present a, a moral quandary. But at the same time, sacrificing them on the altar of ball to get good boy points from the regime, that's probably not it, to be perfectly honest, especially when you're doing it to get internet clout. Yes, you know? that, that, and that's really critical. This this is so hard for, for some people um, because they can't draw this line, but it's really essential. Your moral duty in how you're going to interact with the situation is not the same as your need to publicly, uh, you know, fillet the the uh the administration or the the regime like these are those are not the same thing like if you're looking to increase your status by showing how much you can throw someone under the bus you can uh you you can uh sacrifice an enemy how willing you are to bend over backwards whenever you have the opportunity to show uh that you're you're ultimately loyal or you're ultimately capitulating to those in power you're, you're really revealing to yourself that this, this is, you know, this is my main interest that not the actual uh, worrying about like how I should m interact with the morality of the situation. Your moral response is something like you said, often in a situation, it's going to be need to be something that you are doing in private, or it's something that is held tight inside a community, or perhaps it is simply something like stepping away, you know, removing a public support for someone who is uh, who is uh, behaving badly or is beyond the pale. That is not the same as going to the other side and saying, I would like to show you that I am worthy of your respect 
by publicly going out of my way to destroy this person. These are very different behaviors. And what one is the way that you should actually address something in a moral situation. And one is the mask I'm putting on or the demonstration I'm putting on for public credibility. Well, definitely. And this is the, the deepest irony in this is that Dreyer himself gets this, right? In that book, I mentioned the Benedict Option, which is very influential on me. He talks about that, right? That when you have a community, when you deliberately create a community, it has to be policed from the inside, right? Very successful parallel societies like the Amish and the ultra-Orthodox, they've done this well. And so if we look at like, okay, like we're, we, let's say I believe that premise, right? That, that Christian conservatives are no longer a majority group and they need to act like a minority group, like specifically parallel minority group. Well, let's look at successful parallel minority groups, complicated societies that exist kind of completely apart from the, the broader American one. Well, what do they do? They don't do this, right? You don't have Amish people writing up, you know, like, like self-flagellating 1400 word posts on Substack realize the Amish part might kind of control, but you, you understand my point. <laughs> and what's especially galling about this is that this is a pattern of behavior, right? I won't get into the Thomas Accord affair, but essentially what Dreyer did is took a very, very small instance of, should we say unbecoming behavior, right? A, uh, uh, the headmaster of a small Christian school Dreyer was connected to had an Anon account he was connected to Stephen Wolf of, of Christian nationalist fame. Some Antifa account found it, doxed him, and he was going to get let go from his job for saying edgy things on the internet, right? Probably the, there's good, there's a good reason to say that the school had grounds to let him go because he lied about it. So fair enough, right? But if that's just that, that is essentially a personnel matter at a hundred person school. No one hears about it. But what Dreyer does is the same mechanism, right, to get that prestige as one of the good conservatives, right? I'm not like those guys, is he blows it up. And now it's a story in the New York Times, which that's a whole extra magnitude. You have taken this small problem and blown it up to a degree that is in the biggest, the paper of record, quote unquote. And it ends up nuking this entire school. This man is now literally unemployable, cannot find a job over the entire continental US, driven all over the place. And multiple people lose their jobs and now this whole institution is in flames it is probably yeah. going to fold people right? have nothing nothing to do with the initial quote unquote crime uh you know that 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 was the the point of the witch hunt are now being blown uh, blown up by this right 100% and why was that done well to establish that rod dreyer is quote unquote principled which means he will sacrifice his people into the maw of the beast, essentially to gather extra prestige, you know, to, to get more clicks, to get more eyes, because to be honest, his people, quote unquote, and the people he wrote his books about, they're not his paymasters, right? They don't give, they, they can't give him the currency he wants. And I think that what we see across the board, looking at, you know, whether you want to call these people rhinos, whether you want to call them swamp creatures, good conservatives. I, I use the term, uh, house conservatives, right, to kind of, uh, you know, uh, mimic Malcolm X there, right, is that essentially it's a, what we call elsewhere, kind of a principal agent problem. You know, that your representatives, right, the people that you give money to, well, they don't have the same goals you do. You know, you may be thinking, Aaron, you know, like, oh, I am conservative. I give my money to conservatives. Therefore, they will act out that, you know, they will essentially respect my end of the deal. We don't see, we see that in many cases breaking down. And I guess that in all of this, kind of, if you could drill it down to my thesis statement, it's essentially that find better patrons, you know, because you're getting a raw, the raw end of the deal. Yeah. And, and it's really important because when you are setting up these societies, like, okay, we have a small Christian school, right? This is the alternative institution. This is the thing that we're always telling people they should do separate yourself from the society, put yourself in a situation where you're delivering an alternative education, where there's an alternative set of, uh, of interests, an alternative set of standards, an alternative morality that is being reinforced, that is removing you from the system. That's what you want. That's what you want from these communities. And when 
organizations like that know that somewhere inside that organization, there's like a sleeper cell of people who ultimately are seeking the approval of someone outside of that organization, they will act in accord you know, with, with that instead of with the interest of the organization. That means that people are always on their toes. They, they can't really be on their own. They can't really have an alternative. They can't really have different morals, different values, a different culture, because ultimately they constantly have to be worried about the fact that someone inside the organization is really looking to better themselves with their enemies. And so they're constantly looking over their shoulder. They're constantly making decisions that are influenced by those people. And that, so, so this practice of going around and blowing up people, especially inside these small alternative organizations for your own aggrandizement, it doesn't just hurt those individual people, though that itself is a tragedy. It also makes parallel institutions almost impossible because those people know that they cannot operate because you are specifically drawing scrutiny on top of those organizations for the amusement and aggrandizement in, uh, or for the amusement of your, of your of enemies and your own aggrandizement. And, and that means that they just have no option to actually operate on their own. Well, definitely. And that's sort of one of the, the secret power mechanisms that the regime has, right? Is through civil rights law, through even just kind of the court of public opinion for whatever that's worth, they've essentially created a nuclear option and given everyone a button, right? And if you are in an organization, particularly an organization that the regime does not like, all you have to do is essentially find a reporter, you know, make something up and the whole, the, essentially the wrath of God will come down and smite that person. You saw this with the, the UVA, uh, the UVA fraternity situation, right? Where essentially, let's be honest, fraternities are not explicitly political, but they're an all male organization and the regime doesn't like that, right? It's a, it's a fraternal society. I was not in Greek life, a lot of friends who were, so I'm not particularly biased on this point, but they find someone who, and this is at an elite Southern school, all male organization that's kind of three ticks against it as far as the regime concerned. They get this completely made up story, turns out to be completely false. And Rolling Stone publishes a massive expose about you know, the sexual assault that happens at this fraternity. And these kids have their lives ruined. And then we find out three to five years later that it was made up whole cloth, right? And so that's an example of that nuclear option. You know, that if you can find a sympathetic ear to listen to, you know, essentially it's a story people want to believe, right? Oh, those are, according to the regime, those are bad people. So this looks like a half decent story. Completely obliterate this. Again, another example is the Kavanaugh situation, right? That all of a sudden you have, uh, shall we say, less than, less than convincing stories popping out yeah. of the woodwork. But they're lent credence because it is convenient for power to lend credence to these stories. This is another one, right? That would happen with Accord where it's like, well, to be honest, it doesn't really matter. Like this is not a big deal. You know, some guy said something inappropriate on social media. It happens all the time. But because cl small classical Christian schools are coded as enemies, right? Well, all of a sudden, this is a New York Times story. This really matters. I'll have you know there are dangerous Christian nationalists who are just one day away from taking over in America at schools like this. And so again, right, it's another way in which this, this sort of can catapult someone to kind of stratosphere, like uh, immense fame, you know, like the, I think it was, was her name Mattress Girl at UVA or was that another one? Can't I'm remember. trying to remember when that, yeah, I don't know if that was UVA, it might've been. It's been the point while. is, right, you can catapult your career, you know, make yourself well-known. And I hate to say it, this is how Dreyer got famous. He got famous by writing about uh, sex scandals in the Catholic Church, which admittedly were a problem. But at the same time, you start to look back, given what we know now, and even if everything he did then was perfect, you know, it's absolutely perfect. Nonetheless, right, it is a way that a lot of people make themselves very famous at the expense of enemies of the regime. And, and you have to like there for for the right to finally break free of this dynamic they need alternatives they need situations where they can be separate they can be apart and like you said they can have communities 
uh, that that can guard themselves against this, which of course again is the irony because Dreher knows this. He's written about this, but but we we you know whether whether he understands the implications of his own writing or not, we have to understand this that the people in power are more dangerous than bad people to our right, which does not mean that there aren't bad people. That doesn't mean that everyone on the right is perfect. It doesn't mean everyone on the right is doing the right thing. It doesn't mean that every, no one on the right is guilty or, or and no one on the right is, uh, you know, is, is doing something that's, uh, you know, that should, should be reproached. However, it means that we have to understand that the people in power to the left, the people who are fighting for, you know, child castration and actually hold you know, power in, in inside the government and inside corporations, inside, uh, you know, the military and all these incredibly powerful organizations, they are just way more dangerous than any, you know, individual who happens to hold bad beliefs, which doesn't mean those beliefs are okay or, you know, those actions are okay. But we have to, we have to understand where the priorities are and we have to understand the cost of expending our energy going after people who are of no threat in general to society as opposed to people who wield all of the power in society and are driving the cultural incentive system that is putting us in this position in the first place. Well, I think that if we can, if we can distill this down to, to two bullet points, right? Like why, why did I come on the show? That's point number one. And point number two is don't, don't let your definition of kind of like what is, what is good and high status come from your enemies, hmm. because if they control what you think, is high status, you know, good behavior, you're completely done. So you, you see this with any number of issues, right? That once you have successfully coded something like, for instance, getting married and having kids young as backwards and low class, it disappears very, very quickly. I'm talking on kind of a broad scale. And so in that, right, you have to wonder of, well, okay, do the people who kind of mimic the behavior of high status, you know, progressives in every way, except for kind of n number of policy positions, right? Which way are they going? And that's a pretty easy answer. And so when we talk about building those parallel institutions, we also have to understand that if you're going to do that, you will never be seen in a broader context as hip and cool. Like you will have to fully commit to the fact that you are now low status if you're one of the purebloods, right? The people who got through COVID, you're familiar with this, right? That essentially you had to get to a point where you're like, okay, guess what? I'm going to be treated like a, a criminal. You know, I'm going to have to, you know, do certain things, go certain places, essentially have a parole officer if you were at certain universities, like I was. And that's embarrassing, right? But if you're going to be a dissident, and this is the whole point of Dreyer's third book, if you're going to be a dissident, you have to do dissident things. And part of that is you're going to be seen as uncool. You're going to be seen as low status and you're going to face essentially social consequences. And that's sort of the price of, of entry, I guess. Yeah. Darren Beatty calls us the pain box, uh, which I think is a, he says, if, if nobody, if the guy is not in the pain box, then you shouldn't trust him. If, if, this, you know, if, if someone is just riding high and, and uh, you know, receiving all the pats on the head from all the major outlets and, you know, is never paying a cost and, and is never being uh, signaled as low status and all these things, then then this person is not in the pain box. They're not somebody who's actually an enemy regime, which doesn't mean that, you know, people can't have success or can't, can't doesn't mean that people don't gain popularity or or or, or status, because eventually you do want people to have that through the alternative alternative system. But if the mainstream is patting these people on the head or if they're move, making moves that constantly put themselves in that situation, they're not being put in the box, you know, then that means that they're not really a threat. They're, they're, they're part of the regime. They're not somebody who's actually standing against it. Well, well, definitely. And it is sort of one of those things where it's like, there are people who I are to my right and who I don't like, you know, people who I find, you know, irritating or unproductive, but I've seen them take hits, right? Seen them take serious hits. And when you see someone have a controversial idea and really suffer for it, right? Like lose job, you know, lose money, lose social connections, and they keep going, it's a pretty good indication that they actually believe what they're saying. Mm. And I think that one of the things that we've <laughs> we've sort of realized about 
the the kind of current civic religion, right? Progressivism 2.0 is it essentially there are very few true believers, right? There are very few people who, if you really like held their feet to the fire, were like, I would suffer for this. You know, I, I would lose status. I think it's a lot of people who are essentially are, are getting free stuff, you know? And that's something you have to admire, you know, that someone is basically willing to kind of go to the mat for what they believe, go to the pain box. And so you look at that and you're like, you know what? I don't agree with him on XYZ. You know, he's a, a Greek statue poster on Twitter. I'm a Christian. Let's just not start this. You know, right. we're fighting Leviathan. And, you know, maybe the guy who thinks that like actually being a, a gay Nietzschean, you know, physique poster is the true way to get this. Maybe we're we're not in complete agreement. But uh to to kind of paraphrase Sam Hyde, he he doesn't think it, he doesn't want my kids dead. You know, he doesn't want to castrate my kids and he doesn't think it's funny. So that, that's kind of a, a basic friend enemy distinction. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, we're going to pivot over to some questions we've got stacking up. But before we do that, Mr. Burden, where can everyone find your great work? Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me on. So the Jay Burden show is a, is an interview show uh, tr normally about an hour long. I've had Aron on any number of people you may be familiar with. You can find that show on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere you listen to podcasts. And uh, again, Aron, thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely, man. All right, let's go ahead and answer some questions. Uh, so Deuce Boogaloo for $20. On Friday, I saw Shapiro react to a clip of Tucker and Dave Smith uh, be befuddled but, uh, by their shared disdain of Bill Buckley. Oren, could you please make a video explaining why the dissident right disapproves of Buckley? and his legacy uh yeah i commented on this i'm actually gonna have uh dave smith on tomorrow uh so i can do you one better i could just have a conversation uh, <laughs> about this uh with the guy responsible for this um to be clear like bill buckley it's not like everything bill buckley ever said is wrong or you know he's like the guy all by himself that you know that drove everything that we've seen all the failures that Let's not say that Bill Buckley, you know, there there's work he did that was good. There are opinions he had that were correct. There, there are things to say uh, in his defense. However, the main thing about Buckley and many people who are held in his position inside the conservative movement is you can see over and over again the times that he canceled people to his right, which is a big part of the conversation that we're having today. Buckley ran a lot of people out of the conservative movement uh, that disagreed with him. He ultimately helped to cancel people like Pat Buchanan for having uh, anti-immigration uh, uh, stances. Uh, he uh, ultimately canceled a lot of people who warned about the excesses that would follow the Civil Rights Act and civil, uh, civil rights law. And so while Bill Buckley is certainly better than the vast majority of obviously like leftists and maybe even a number of people who have called themselves conservative throughout time, holding him up as some monolithic leader of the right who, you know, who, who stood against everything uh, that kind of came. I think that's the misunderstanding of history. I think that many of the moves that Buckley made pushed us in directions that we are now because they silenced voices that brought very important uh, positions uh, to the to the foreground. And those things stayed in the wilderness for a very long time until people like Trump and many on the dissident right were able to bring them back to the fore. And so it's it's not a wholesale condemnation of Buckley in every scenario. But it is it is pointing out the fact that uh, th this is that the positions that he took and the the ways that he influenced the conservative movement in many and many different crucial points silenced important voices or excised uh, important opinions that put us in the situation we are. If I can step in, absolutely. Uh, speaking of, of people who were who were canceled, Sam Francis's uh, book "Beautiful Losers" mm -hmm. is probably the resource I would start with. Uh, as with any truly quote unquote banned book, it's quite expensive to buy a copy, but uh, hypothetically, if you wanted their places, you can get it for free. And I'd recommend that as a primer on this topic. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, an excellent book to kind of get, get you to understand that mindset here. All right. So, uh, for $2. Thank you. Uh, Beaver game gang represent that's uh, that's uh, your channel, right? It's, uh, <laughs> it is. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. McSlob. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, Cliff Jaded here. Uh, keep your heads up. The lie can't last forever. Hi from Singapore. Big fan of both of you guys. Christ is king. Christ is indeed king. And thank you very much, man. 
I appreciate it. Tell me, tell me more about how Singapore is. I'm, I'm very interested. Uh, Deuce here again for $20. Uh, the right will win when they realize democracy in itself is a system that is left oriented because it's based on who's more willing to loot the treasury. Uh, and this creates the dependence uh, culture that causes progressive uh, decivilization. Uh, you're in great company making that point, of course. Uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe, uh, Nick Land, Minchus Mulbug, uh, many, many people uh, who we uh, have uh, you know mentioned on this channel, respect, have done streams on, have have written pieces on, make exactly this point. And so I think uh, I think that's a very fair thing to point out, sir. John Carter here. Uh, you uh, you could say that Roger's family is a parallel community, as in his path, and theirs never intersect. Uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not super up on Dreer's personal life, and I I don't want to make that what what this stream is about. But I I appreciate that, man. Uh, uh, Cody Browning here, Oren, you're in the Beaver Gang now. Build the dam. Uh, have I been in initiated? I didn't even I wasn't <laughs> I, I even think aware. So. It's uh. It's a very strange cult, but you'll uh, you'll get your uh, you'll get your benefits package soon. I've seen the beaver posting, uh, so I, I, I I've seen that much, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm I don't know I don't know the secret handshake or anything. Clip uh, bar for ten dollars, great show, fellas. Well, thank you, man. I really appreciate that. Uh, and yeah, guys, I, I really appreciate everybody for coming by. Of course, again, you should make sure to check out Mr. Burden's channel. Does lots of good interviews with people who have been on this show, many people will be familiar uh, familiar with, but also new faces that you should definitely learn from. All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up, but I want to go ahead and once again, thank Mr. Burden for coming on. And if it's your first time on this channel, make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the Aaron McIntyre show on your favorite podcast platforms. Uh, and make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the channel here. If you want to watch these on YouTube, of course, I'm also on Rumble and Odyssey. You can catch everything over on Blaze TV, many different places for you to catch the show. But thank you guys for watching. And as always, I'll talk to you next time.